So if you have a deep understanding of what pre-sales is doing, the team involved, the product fit and everything else, you can get a much more accurate lens on what is real and what we should be focusing on as a business. Welcome to Pre-Sales Heroes by Vivin. I'm Perry Bronson, your host and pre-sales evangelist. Today, I'm so pleased to have Vivin CEO and co-founder Matt Darrow here to talk about what's driving Vivin to create an entirely new software category for pre-sales. He'll be answering the question, what can Vivin do for you? And what is this thing we're calling PsyOps? Before we get started, how are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Perry. Thanks for having me. This will be an easy topic to talk about. We've got lots to say on the subject. Yes, but before getting straight into it, I did want to talk about your hero origin story. This is how we start off all of our podcasts. Before founding Vivin, I know you spent years leading pre-sales organizations. And so going back to the, the beginning, I'd love to hear how you found yourself in this field and ultimately founding Vivin. I found my way into pre-sales like a lot of professionals do, which is completely by chance. I had no idea that that was a role, a career or a profession. And it just so happens to be uh, one of the best professions, especially at a B2B technology company. I mean, myself, I studied engineering. I, after my master's degree, I was writing software and running experiments and being in a laboratory all day was definitely not for me. So I joined Deloitte Consulting as an SAP software developer uh, running consulting projects. And it was very post-sales focused. That also was not for me. And at that point in time, I was really excited about how technology could be used to serve businesses. And I was technical by background, but that whole multi-year project deployment, oh, that wasn't something that I was really into. And I started looking around and this role of sales engineer um, started to catch my eye. And I had absolutely no idea what it was, but it sounded really cool because I could combine my expertise in engineering with solving business problems. And I joined a company at the time called Big Machines. They were later acquired by Oracle in the configure price quote space and had really been in the career uh, since that time. And that's where actually I spent my next 10 plus years, um, not only Big Machines and then Zora, the subscription management company on the IPO run, and learned a whole heck of a lot about running pre-sales organizations on a global basis, the needs of a very high growth company all the way through going public. And then a lot of those learnings ultimately formed the basis of Vivin, which as I was going through the world of being an individual contributor and then a manager, then an executive and a global pre-sales leader, I've never had anything for myself, right? I was tasked and chartered with running and building these teams, driving these organizations, having a big strategic impact. And there were no tools, no products, no commercially available services that were designed for me. And it was a very simple origin story where after that success from Zora, stepping back and saying, hey, why doesn't anybody build products for this role? And, and there's a really big need that we could fulfill. You know, from all the pre-sales leaders I've spoken with, the pain that they go through to answer basic questions like, is my team working qualified deals? Where are they spending time? And not being able to answer those things basically means you're not being able to leverage your team and develop them into the, the marvelous professionals they want to be, right? So I think it's just wonderful that you have actually taken it upon yourself to make it easier to do those things and so much more. And this, this led you to found Vivid. 
Going to the backstory a little bit, rumor has it that you were on your honeymoon when you came up with the idea to build this first platform for pre-sales. Is this true? And I'm just curious, how exactly did your wife let you get away with that? (laughs) Well, it's almost true. It wasn't a honeymoon, but my wife was there with me. So Dominique is actually one of our other co-founders. And when Zora was going public, Dominique was at Google at the time. And it was a great time to take a little bit of a career break and stop and reflect and think about sort of what would come next. Um, and you're right. We we went down, uh, had bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand, spent about $3,000 on a very, very tiny camper van before uh, Sprinter vans were very popular. Uh, it was so small, I couldn't even sit up inside of it. It was actually quite painful. And put about 20,000 miles on it doing figure eights all around the island down there and got to the point where it really had a lot of just freedom to ideate. And was writing down all these different ideas. And one thing that came to mind was, well, how do I build a product for all the challenges that I personally went through over the last 10 years of building and running pre-sales and product teams? And and it got to the point where um, I couldn't stop thinking about it and writing it, where we actually ditched the van, started to get Airbnbs so we could have Wi-Fi access. And I was writing the first lines of code, building the first skeleton of the website, putting together the pitch deck, and actually ideating the fact that, you know, a lot of the the pain that I went through as a leader, well, first of all, was oftentimes pre-sales leaders are promoted from within because of their domain expertise in the technology. And you get this very tough dynamic, right? You have the quote unquote, the adults in the room and the leadership team that have maybe, you know, been there, done that at another company. And then you have the pre-sales leadership that's very in tuned with how the product, the technology and the business works. But you need to be able to make your case for what your team needs to look like, how many staff members you need, what those staff members should be trained and skilled at, what they should be working on. And one of the first big challenges was just making the right asks of what do I need to be successful? If we're going to scale this team around the world, right, there's really nothing there for us. And the other big thing for us that was really challenging in terms of what we had lived through was finding the right product fit as a growing company that kept expanding into different regions and geographies and verticals. And the company had these objectives to achieve and we were trying to pair up. What are we hearing across the market that's going to best you know, sort of unlock revenue? And then also we were always strapped. I think pre-sales, unfortunately, is seen as a little bit of a cost to the sales process, not an enabler of bookings, which is a little bit backwards. And because of that, the the team is always sort of operating at 120% of probably what they should have been and in working deals that probably weren't qualified, you know, focusing on opportunities that necessarily weren't the best fit for the company. And there was a lot of struggle around just figuring out where do we dedicate our work and our effort because we knew things that no other department did based on our skill set. So I, I, I really was ideating all of these things that I personally went through and it just made complete sense that a company had to exist from it because you know I had custom built with an engineering background you know some basic skeleton framework of how I might accomplish that at prior lives. Um, but again, it was it was hey we should make this commercially available to help everybody else along the way. Buy pre-sales for pre-sales is one of the big reasons that I'm here at Vivin is just knowing that this platform was built by people who have walked miles and miles in the shoes and definitely understand the passion there really comes through. I'd love to talk a little bit about 
what is happening in this world of B2B tech that not only gave you the passion from your experience, of course, but gave you the inspiration and the courage to really put yourself out there and go to VCs and tell a story that, that landed you some great funding. What was happening in the world that really enabled you to, to go out and do that? Well, I think, and in, in for listeners who may be going through their first fundraising cycle, thinking about starting a company or just have been watching companies um, from afar, it's a really tough process. Right? There's, there's a lot of investment and, and money and opportunity out there, but unlocking it is really challenging because you need to have a big ticket idea, story, transformation that you want to drive and make sure that folks understand how you're going to get there. And for us, you know, it started in 2019 when we raised our seed round. When I would talk about pre-sales, most people thought that meant sales development. It was a rough start because we would get into a conversation of where I had spent my career and the challenges that I faced. And I would always sort of stop abruptly where it was, wait a second, pre-sales, are we talking about cold calling? We're definitely not talking about cold calling, right? We're talking about the folks that are technical experts that drive revenue and are really the lifeblood of a deal. So one of the first things that that actually helped me do is people need to understand the breadth of this role and scope because the challenge is that a lot of the professionals' titles 10, 12, 15 different permutations from sales engineer to solution consultant to field engineer to application specialist to field CTR, the list goes on and on. And, and when you actually do the work to count them, there's over 350,000 companies across industries. 90,000 of those are in technology alone, servicing millions of professions. Um, and it's growing faster than companies can hire. So I think that's like the first thing that gave me a lot of confidence and conviction is that this isn't just a, a niche thing in Silicon Valley. Um, it's a role that's been around for decades that's very, very prevalent across multiple industries. And it's massive in size and scale and scope. I think you know, well, why would somebody pay attention to it you know, now versus five, five years ago or even 10 years ago? And I think back to you know, the sales processes that we would run at my, my prior life company in subscription billing. And it was tough if a customer wanted to get their hands on your product during an evaluation because the technology, you know, it was complicated. It had a lot of integrations. There was a lot of complexity. And we were truthfully nervous of if that would hurt the buying cycle. And, and what you see happen even today, just you know, five years plus later, nearly every company, especially high growth, um, there's some level of hands-on access that's occurring across every product set. We do the same things ourselves internally at Vivint. We'd love people to get hands-on with our products before they you know, sort of commit to a partnership with us. Um, but that's you know, through open source or freemiums or trials or pilots or proof of values or whatever that happens to be. And... And that's changed sort of this B2B buying cycle from this old sales-led world of, you know, the, the, the customer, the prospect is at arm's length from the product. The, the salesperson has a great personal relationship and they call the sales engineer in to whip up a smoke and mirrors custom demo on what could be possible. And then, you know, you want to buy. So the system integrator is going to give you a million dollar SOW to hopefully make it work. Um, and that sales led model, you know, it's, it's, um, it's sort of, it's time has come and, and it's not as effective anymore. And what's occurring now is, you know, companies have these product led beginnings where I can get started with open source and freemium, but, but that's not a monetization engine, right? It's just a way to get into an account. 
But when a, a buyer wants to decide a, a long-term commitment and a relationship and real dollars start to change hands, um, that's where pre-sales comes in. And they're more important than ever before because it's not just about a smoke and mirrors demo. It's like the person's in the technology and they're trying to understand how it will meet their needs, how they'll expand their use cases. And they want to talk to folks that are experts uh, in the technology, which is why companies like Zoom right, have gone from 50 sales engineers to nearly 500 in a 12-month span of time um, to facilitate that. And we, we call that, you know, we think about that at, at uh, Vivint here as is buyer-led growth, right? That's what's happening is that folks that have access to your products and service, that buyer has all of the power. And the way that you're going to facilitate them is to make sure that they have as much transparency and collaboration as they can for them to drive a commitment that says, hey, five or six separate tools might have sprouted up in our organization, but only one is going to really win it for the long haul because we're going to have to train our staff around it. We're going to have to support it. IT is going to have to manage it. Um, and that's where pre-sales is really having a big a big boost. So for us, like going to fundraise, it was a relatively simple set of ideas, which is pre-sales has been around for 30 plus years. They call themselves a bunch of different things, but it's a massive opportunity that nobody's ever paid attention to. And the reason that nobody's ever paid attention to it is because the role has fundamentally changed over the last few years from you know, the, the, the demo assistants to do smoke and mirrors to the folks that are actually very, very hands-on and collaborative with buyers because they're already having access to services under investigations, creating this massive need for them and no commercial available products to help them be successful. And I think there are also strength in numbers, right? We've seen this incredible growth of the departments, but also just having a unified identity. Of course, it, pre-sales looks very, very different role to role, company to company. Absolutely. But so does engineering. And you're, you're still all engineers, right? So I think rallying the troops around some, some centralized issues, even if, of course, the role can look very different. So you mentioned buyer-led growth, and you talked a bit about product-led growth. This is a really hot topic, and it's a really interesting one to me in particular because of some of my experience in my last company, where it was the first place I'd really gone where I heard from the, the SE team, and I was working in product marketing there, but I worked closely with the sales engineers. It was the first place I'd heard that POCs get the, the deal done. We're not trying to put off POCs. We want a POC because those convert. That's how we sell our product. And we were actually trying for a product-led motion as well. And it's not that these two things are mutually exclusive, right? You can do both. But to your point, we had a really hard time turning those free, free users into big paid enterprise accounts. Doesn't mean that they were impossible, but when they did turn into enterprise accounts, uh, deals, paid customers, it was through a proof of value. It was through that pre-sales process. I'm curious to hear from you, really, what is the difference between these go-to-market strategies, product-led growth on that side, and a sales-led growth, which I think is an interesting model as well? Well, similar to what we were mentioning, sales-led is the tried-and-true model that SAP and Oracle made famous. And very top-down, very much focused on the relationship, sort of the product being at arm's length. And we all know where that where that has a tendency to end up, which is maybe some misset expectations and products that are purchased that don't really deliver on what was sold. So that's why companies are moving to a better way. And I think that there's definitely a lot of uh, excitement and fanfare and 
discussion around product-led growth out there. I think there's some naive assumptions that products magically sell themselves, which uh, being in, in enterprise selling for the better part of 15 years, I can unequivocally say that's not how sales happens or people buy. <laughs> but but where product-led is really important is it's an entry point. I almost think about it more of like a marketing muscle because it gives you penetration into potential buyers. Um, and that's really the goal, where if you have an open source, a freemium, a trial, an easy on-ramp, a test drive, some way that you can experience your solution, that's going to be one of sort of the best marketing or pipeline generators out there because you're getting very strong signal for somebody that already feels like they've they've referenced some pain they have with the technology that you might provide and they start to explore it. Again, I think the the, the challenge with product-led models is they're not monetization engines. I think in B2C, they work really well, business to consumer, because you have sort of one individual that you're talking to and you're trying to get them to convert you know, free to paid and swipe their credit card. But at a, at a business-to-business organization, you have the realities of procurement and IT and centralized provisioning and, and management where five or six different tools might sprout out, but one is going to be selected for the long haul. And what happens is when that department is forced to then figure out which one they will go with, that's really you know, what we're talking about in terms of that buyer-led nature where they're already hands-on, they already have some level of information, and now it's really figuring out who they want to drive a relationship with over the long haul. And that's where real dollars changes hands. This is where multi-year contracted commitments come into play, you know, annual-based contracts potentially, and you'll get these buyers that have, have access to alternatives and they're really trying to understand um, how this product will work and solve their needs and not on where it will be five years from now, but what it does today. And that's what really we mean by buyer-led growth, where that buyer is in absolute control over how they're going to go and determine which relationship they want to pursue. And pre-sales is the best weapon for a company to actually win. In terms of if there's five solution providers, how are you going to make sure that you're the one selected? It's through the pre-sales organization. They're the ones that can answer the questions, sort of expand the art of what's possible, have a really good understanding of how the product will meet their needs. And if it doesn't, right, channel that intelligence back to the product development house. Because having a very, very strong product fit is more important than ever now too, because folks are buying based on what they have their hands on, which is what's delivered in your product. And you need to have a much tighter uh, understanding of where the market is today, what they're willing to pay for and buy today, and what you need to ship, because that's how these deals are being driven. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So what I'm hearing here is buyer-led growth is really this phenomenon that's happening and maybe hasn't been named explicitly, but it's absolutely been happening. And it's the reason why the function of pre-sales has become so indispensable. Vivin, of course, exists to unlock the power of pre-sales in this buyer-led world. We build a platform to do this. So let's talk about the category we're creating and you know, as the first platform in that space. We're calling it pre-sales, Intel, and Ops. And I want to hear from you, Matt, what exactly is in Vivin's PsyOps platform? Well, what's critically important is that it is Intel and Ops, because if you look at what pre-sales folks have to do, you not only need to sort of run, scale, and manage the team, but there's critical pieces of information that need to be distributed across the organization that really only pre-sales knows. 
And that's, I think, what has always made the role so powerful. The core part of Vivint's PsyOps platform, which addresses this category of pre-sales, Intel, and Ops, first of all, is that it, it sort of acts and thinks like somebody in pre-sales, which means you are half expert in revenue and half expert in engineering, and you bridge the gap between the wild world of deals and dollars that normally live in a CRM and the wild world of epics and issues and releases that happen in the system like Jira, Buy Atlassian, or, or GitHub. And that interconnective tissue is, first of all, one of the core, core hallmarks of a Intel and Ops platform for pre-sales because those two big strategic pillars of sales and then engineering are living in systems that are completely different and distinct and separate with different metrics and data models and structures. And just like pre-sales is the conduit that brings them together personally, this is what the technology needs to do. This is sort of first and foremost. The second part of it is having all the enterprise sort of standards and certifications are incredibly important because when you think about those two worlds that you're joining, you have very, very sensitive data. You're not just looking at maybe, you know, chats and conversations, you're commingling information around product builds and releases and bringing that together into a world that also includes customers and deals and revenue information. So GDPR and, and SOC certifications are important from a security standpoint, but then there's a lot of data that needs to be processed. So scalability and how do you control access roles are all things that are very, very uh, sort of critical. And that builds up the data layer, right? Because ultimately, and especially for us, one of our really big bets as a business is that the insights that come from information in and around pre-sales are some of the most transformative pieces of data that an enterprise can get their hands on. Because normally it tells you what are the needs of the market? What does it take to win? What are the team members best adept at pursuing deals to closure? What should we even be targeting or focusing on? And there's this whole wealth of information that really your traditional CRM and sales system and your engineering system really don't you know, have access to. And, and that data layer brings all that together so you can apply data science and machine learning to it. Most enterprise companies out there from the buying side are buying technologies that have embedded data science uh, as a competitive advantage. And then vendors, you know, like ourselves who are technologists, know that you can tap into uh, a lot of things that you were never able to do before for very, very specific use cases. So when I think about like the core jobs that an Intel and Ops platform needs to be able to perform, well, the first one is how do we facilitate this amazing alignment between the product and field? And, and making sure that, you know, we're scraping through mountains of very, very complex, raw, unstructured information around, you know, the needs of buyers and customers and figuring out how to tee those up to product. And then when delivery occurs, actually go back and uh, understand how do we target and how do we unlock revenue and dormant revenue at the same time. There's also a big bent around technical forecasting. I remember, and if you talk to a lot of sales leaders out there, if you ask the pre-sales team to raise their hand if they're working a deal they know will never close. 100% of the time, you'll get someone to raise their hand. And they they have a, a, a knowledge of, um, do we actually have technology that will allow these customers to A, be successful, but then also meet their needs? And really, pre-sales knows that more than anybody else. So if you have a deep understanding of what pre-sales is doing, the team involved, the product fit, and everything else, you can get a much more accurate lens on what is real and what we should be focusing on as a business. The third part is just general team management. Again, I go back to what I mentioned at the beginning is the unfortunate perception of the role is, is sort of a cost and a drag on the sales system 
and not an enabler of bookings. And from a team standpoint, that means you have to be incredibly effective and efficient at using the limited folks that you have to drive the outcomes to the business. So that goes into how do you figure out who to assign to which potential account and and opportunities and sales engagements that have the best likelihood of closure, Um, sort of who's busy and who's not, managing capacity, managing prioritization, understanding how do you swarm different deliverables in a deal. Pre-sales works in a very different way than sales reps do. A sales rep, one person will own sort of an account and an opportunity, but pre-sales folks might have specialists and overlays and product experts and and uh, value engineers, right? Four or five different people that are touching key deliverables in a deal and wrangling all of them to drive an outcome is really, really tough. And then, oh, by the way, right, you have to measure all that so you can communicate the value so the organization understands they're a revenue enabler and not just sort of a drag on the system. And the last part is around deal collaboration, right? Pre-sales lives hand in hand, working with their account executive counterparts which is why they normally have bookings or or quotas tied into their compensation plans, but then also deal collaboration with buyers. One of the things that we talked about at the beginning around hands-on, transparent, collaborative experiences, that's what pre-sales needs to be able to facilitate as well, which is how do they collaborate, not just internally, but they need to be able to collaborate with the folks that are potentially considering a long-term relationship with them as well. So that's really the sort of those fundamentals of Intel and ops, where again, that's why it's, 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 it's so important that there's a mechanism for running and scaling the team. Then there's also this great interconnective tissue that allows you to distribute these key insights across them and those core job functions all built on sort of a, a platform that connects those two major worlds together of your CRM systems and your product systems and applies data science to some of the most sticky and hard and thorniest customer problems out there. Yeah, I, I love that we were talking about pre-sales intel, pre-sales intelligence here, right? Uh, not only because we care about AI and that's a, a wonderful way to augment that intelligence, but because this is a department that has such a unique and valuable data set that has been so hard to tap into for, uh, I think, most pre-sales leaders out there, right? It's it's scrapping together what you can in Salesforce reports and spreadsheets, right? So love the emphasis on Intel, of course, and then the fact that we're operationalizing that, that we're not only making that data available, but we're also making it actionable on every single deal. So what what can you do to improve the, the technical strength of a deal? The fact that we're elevating those kinds of insights with our AI and then also zooming out into the analytics and reporting around how's the team performing? Where are they spending their time? What are the best ways to get the technical win on a given deal? And also elevating the product information too. I mean, most SEs can individually answer what they think needs to be built for them to close more revenue, but being able to do that at scale um, can be a real challenge. So this all sounds awesome in theory, of course. And I I really want to hear from you, Matt, what can our listeners out there actually expect to get from Vivin? Maybe the best way to almost visualize it is just through some of the stories of our customers. That's, for me, one of the things that's most fun about starting and running the company is you get to interact with all these pre-sales leaders across industries and you see these different outcomes occur. And a couple come to mind. The first is 
watching people get promoted. And actually, this is a strange one maybe to bring up. Uh, I personally love watching this happen because what happens in pre-sales is that you're normally a subgroup within the sales organization and you're you're not really given you know sort of autonomy and budget and tools to succeed and control your own destiny. You're sort of at the beck and call on the whim of the sales team. And what we've seen sort of time and time again is that when pre-sales steps up and and doesn't accept that as the status quo and says, no, hold on a second, I'm gonna run my team as a business. I'm gonna be very strategic in the types of information uh, that I can bring to the organization. Um, I'm gonna be accountable to you know really critical metrics that get shared up all the way to the board level. Um, we see folks break out of that normal silo and become either a peer to the sales organization or take on even different titles like a field CTO. And I think that's been one of the fun things that we've seen occur is that in an organization where, again, pre-sales is normally a subgroup that does demos, when they really start to own their world and they, they, they acknowledge the fact that they're so critical to this buyer-led motion that they start to have the most critical answers on how and why deals get done and then having a toolkit that allows them to make sure that the right people are working them, they're chasing the right ones with the right product and market. And that has a tendency to elevate the role. And we see folks uh, go down that path and it's really rewarding to, to see that happen. Another interesting story too is just unlocking market share and capturing capturing more of it, market size, I should say. And what we'll see time and time again is companies are are always wrestling with what is the next top priority in terms of their product. Is it an acquisition? Is it another product line? Is it a core set of features to get into a new vertical or segment? And there's a lot of debate and and oftentimes very little agreement across the board on what to tackle. One of the things that makes that really hard is that if you ask the organization what's required, either A, it's incredibly biased based on you know the thing that they can remember, which is probably only over the last 24 hours. Um, and then B, if you're starting to sort of throw all this stuff in JIRA or try to maintain it, um, you get a very, very different, difficult data problem to solve, which is 10 people call one thing, 10 different things. And how the heck do you make heads or tails out of all this without hiring like 10 people whose full-time job is to just comb through information? Um, and this is where, again, tactics and techniques that are uh, that are possible now with data science give companies a strategic advantage because they can leverage a technology like ours and actually automatically cluster and categorize all this noise um, and then figure out sort of what the real signal is and the impact that it can drive. So we'll have companies that say, wow, we actually would have never thought about going down one road. But when we got our hands on the data and the needs, we actually did. It would unlock four or five million dollars of new ACV bookings over a couple months time um, because they were able to meet the need of a market that was very, very strong signal of what they were willing to buy and pay for at that moment in time. They can deliver against it. And the maybe the last one I would bring up, too, is just finding dormant revenue and just recovering revenue. And this goes back to you know, my, my last story around pre-sales has a tendency to work deals they know will never close. So how do we use the intelligence from that group to figure out, well, where should we actually point and direct the revenue team to actually have the highest chance of success? And so much of that has to do with the, the ability for the technology to be a great fit for the customer, but then also um, how that pre-sales person drives that buyer-led agreement and arrangement with transparency and collaboration that is ultimately going to beat out those four or five other tools that sprouted up through a product-led beginning. And understanding 
what does it take to win and the deliverables required and the people required and the deals required, we'll have companies that we'll work with that will say, hey, we actually uncovered five or six deals per quarter that we didn't even think to go back to because now we are very relevant in, in product fit. Or they'll say, hey, when we're looking at prioritizing the quarter, there was a bunch of deals in early stage pipeline and best case that we wanted to bring forward because we knew through you know the information from pre-sales that these are going to have the highest likelihood of conversion. So you'll get increased attainment for uh, the team in general, which means more bookings for the company, which uh, oftentimes no one really has disagreement about. <laughs> Yeah, that, that sounds terrible now. The, the, the tough part, Perry, is that a lot of pre-sales folks, because they don't have their own budget, it is tough. It's tough, right? Because they need to justify why do you invest in pre-sales? And I think oftentimes, right, and we work really hard to help them define this is, well, a company would invest in pre-sales because, A, most, most of the time, every deal rolls through that department and if you can increase their effectiveness and do these things, then you're just going to be able to book more. And you're going to do that through a variety of these different ways and everybody's attainment will increase and and it's just going to unlock growth for the company. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, lot of happy customers. So to wrap up here, what can you share about where you're going to take Viv and Next, Matt? And more generally also, where do you see pre-sales going? What's on the horizon next? Yeah, that's a great question, Perry, and truthfully sounds like almost an entirely other podcast. But I think in, in short, you know, we're just getting started with the products that we brought to market, right? We have our core flagship product, Hero by Vivin, uh, which is built on our PsyOps platform that allows teams to run and scale and, and drive product field alignment, right? And do all these things that we talked about. But if we looked at where we were discussing earlier, where the future is really these very hands-on, collaborative, transparent buying experiences. And I think pre-sales, it's only the start of how they can really drive that. So for us, longer term, like one of the things that you can definitely expect to see is additional products and services that are going to be aimed at allowing pre-sales to, you know, sort of to live up to those new demands. But then on the flip side, in terms of where pre-sales keeps going, we see it sort of even outpacing the growth of a lot of other departments where We'll have organizations that understand that the best way to service a customer is with a skill set that looks very similar to your sales engineer who sold them. So we see like the role of the traditional customer success manager is very much changing and it's becoming to look more and more like somebody in pre-sales that is very, very technical. They can actually solve problems and they're very business savvy. For organizations that sell sort of down market into higher volume segments, we definitely see how account executives and pre-sales folks sort of sort of be merged into one sort of hybrid seller because they're going to need to be able to interact and have discussions on products because people already have access to them. So I only see the skill set of pre-sales expanding and the need starts to expand across these different departments too. I think that the fact of how accessible technology is and how every company in every industry is becoming a technology company um, to some extent is going to continue to make massive demands for pre-sales and, again, redefine the role from the the demo team of, of sort of custom smoke and mirrors to right, these folks that can actually have the biggest impact on the business, on why people buy and why they're successful. And they just need technology that helps them get there. And, and that's why we wake up every day. Thanks, Matt. And we should absolutely do a follow-up that's just on the future of pre-sales. I think that would be an excellent episode. 
I really appreciate you stopping by today and letting me pick your brain on buyer-led growth and all of the jobs that pre-sales leaders can do with our PsyOps platform. This has been such a wonderful, wonderful session, and I really appreciate it, Matt. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you.